Here we are, Wine at Five. Kai Palmer, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. Welcome to our new podcast, which is What's the Story with Kim Burns? So glad you could join me. Very glad to be here. All right, so we are here. We're at Wine at Five, which is in the center of Rye, New York. And you've been here 13 years. As a wine store, yes. As, as a, a wine store. Right. But as a wine bar... We opened a year ago. On the, on the 22nd. I know, I know. So we're, we're enjoying this incredible view of the corner of, uh, what streets are we on? We're on the corner of Elm and Purchase. Okay, and right next door is the Wine at Five, which has been around right. for a while. Yes. Now, your history is a Wall Street guy. So that's your story. It's a Wall Street guy with a twist. It's a city guy. Okay. Because my initial foray into Wall Street was actually in the city of London. Right. Well, no, so clearly the there. accent isn't upstate New York. No, Staten Island. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, no, that's where it all started. But before that, I was actually at university in France. And that's where my love affair with wine came from. Mm-hmm. Picked um, up some good habits. Uh, picked up some very good habits, uh, very cheap habits because that was back in the 70s and everything was a lot less expensive. Wine in general, or just, you're talking about the economy? Well, the economy was just a lot easier to live in back Mm -hmm. then. Um, The only problem is, of course, you had to have a job, rather like you had to these days. Right. So being a student in France, which was a socialist country where there were no jobs, uh, meant that at some point I had to come back to England. And I had to get a proper job, and that was on... That and that was, was after city. university? That was after university. Okay. Um, and so what, was your, what were your ambitions? What were you thinking? Because what I'm trying to discover here is with this crazy story where we ended up in Rye, New York, from England, France, England, and then what? How did that happen? Um, I really had no ambition. Um, ideally, if I'd have, uh, if, if I'd have had... There's everyone in the stream guy with no ambition. I had no ambition. I had no, my only ambition was to continue living in France. I loved it. Absolutely loved it. I Which area? Rugby. I was way down south in the town of Perpignan, which is on the southern Pyrenees as you fall into the Mediterranean on the Spanish Was border. it by accident or uh, by design? It was a little of both. It was, I had been there camping with my family, so I knew the area. Um, it was Somehow camping in France seems so different than just camping. Yeah, it was. It was uh, my father had an old Volkswagen Oldsmobile, um, one of those vans with the pop-up roofs, uh, and he loved like Scooby Doo, like Scooby Doo. <laughs> and we used to go camping. We used to camp all over Europe. But my favourite place to camp was this little little place in the south of France. It was the beaches were beautiful, the people were lovely. Um, I got to know it quite well. We went back quite a few years. And so when the opportunity came to to play rugby for a French team, uh, I played for Perpignan. Okay, well, I think that that part of the story we haven't heard yet, to play rugby on a national team. It was a national team. We were Premier Division. um, And I forget whether or not we won... At any time during the years that I played, I think we did. What was your um, position on the rugby team? Back then it was what we called flanker, which is now, I believe, a wing forward. So it was number five. So I was on the edge of the scrum. Didn't get hurt too much. Had to run fast. And the, the, the French liked me because I was, I was quick. I scored a lot of tries. Um, 
And I was a little bit of a mascot to them. I was this unusual kid from, uh, from England who didn't really speak very good French. Uh, well, they but, say that. The French say that about everyone but the that French. That is true. So, that is true. Yeah, don't take it personally. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, that, yeah, no, that was my ambition back then was to stay there. But uh, sadly, my father died in 83. And so back to England you go. Back to, and back to England, back to, uh, to find a job, which I did. I uh, ended up working at Lehman Brothers. Um, I stayed with We remember Lehman. them. I remember them. They were a very good company back then. Mm-hmm. Um, I stayed with them until, about ni- until 1990. Uh, and I was uh, running commodity asset management at the end of it. It was interesting? I loved it. Did it you? Was absolutely, it was absolutely everything I wanted out of Wall Street or out of the city. It was, it was fast, it was crazy, it was unregulated, it was really just being yeah. a cowboy. Yeah, the unregulated part is always up for discussion. That is true. Right. Um, but, we, you know, we did everything by, by word of mouth and by our bond. Uh, and we didn't get into trouble and... Everybody enjoyed it, and we made money, the company made money, the customers made money. Do you think there was a level of honesty back then that was expected? Absolutely. Yeah. We were honest back then because greed hadn't come in. Greed only started... Gordon Gecko wasn't in the... No, not until the 90s. Right. (laughs) In the 80s, it was was really just about being, about having uh, having enjoyment. Uh, I loved going to work every day. I loved making money for the company and for myself and for the customers. Mm-hmm. And it was, it, there was an honesty behind it. While you were at Lehman, were you still testing, experimenting, learning about wines? No. 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 Except when you went out to dinner, <laughs> possibly. Except when I went out for dinner and then everybody would ask me to look at the wine menu. Uh, so no, it really hadn't even crossed my mind. And were there, um, in, in that day, there weren't great wines in coming out of England, certainly, not out of but, England, right, right but France, France it Italy, Spain, Spain, all of Europe, it was a heyday, we had the great vintages of the 80s, um, so 82, 83, and 85 were phenomenal vintages. Is that because of great weather and crop? Yes, back okay. then it was a lot, to do, a lot more to do with good weather, yes, and skillful winemaking. But That's the skillful winemaking is still there, no? It's still it very much there. But mass-produced, possibly? Well, no, there's, there's, a whole, there's a whole twist there. Uh, if, you, if you go back in history and you look, at, uh, you look at from the 1940s onwards, in the 1940s there was maybe one, possibly, no, actually only one great vintage in Europe. In the 50s... Some would argue that there were none. Hmm. In the 60s, you started to see two great vintages in the decade. In the 70s, it crept up to three. In the 80s, you had 82, 83, 85, 89. You had four or five great vintages. Why? Global warming. But that doesn't exist. But that doesn't exist. Well, it doesn't <laughs> exist in this country, but in Europe, trust yeah, me, they, it actually doesn't it. exist. Um, so you had this phenomena of global warming, and as we all know with wine, the, the weather plays almost the most important part. Mm-hmm. Um, so as global warming occurred and weather patterns started to shift and change, growing wine became more lucrative uh, 
And that, those riches were fed back into the vineyards. So what you began to see in the 80s was reinvestment in technology. Mm-hmm. Um, reinvestment in any type of technology, if it's more efficient, will make you something better. So we started seeing better wines coming out of the wineries. And th- did that affect the prices? Not by then, not yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, and then in the 90s, the, the millennium, if you like, the children of the original farm, farm workers and farm owners began to realize that there actually was money in the land. So they started to come back from the city and they came back to the vineyards. Many of them went back to university. When, when I went to, to Perpignan University, I think you could count on one hand the number of universities that offered wine classes. Right, so the purely romantic vision of wine was finally being commercialized as it would inevitably as be. inevitable. Yeah. Um, but in a sensible way. Um, these kids went to oenology schools, oenology courses at university. They learned things that their parents didn't know. Mm-hmm. Couple, that, couple that with what their parents knew and the fact that there was now money to be made in making wine, you started having far greater efficiencies, far more experimentation, and honestly, much better wine. I'm talking with Kai Palmer. This is What's Your Story with Kim Burns. So at what point did you leave Europe? I left in 1990. Um, Lehman had started to unfold after the crash of 87. Uh, Politics started rearing its ugly head. Uh, Greed certainly started to play a serious part. Um, And I became disenfranchised. I was was tired of what I was doing and I was tired of the politics and tired of the greed. But when Um, you moved to New York, you you, you worked on Wall Street now. I did, but a friend... A friend of mine whom I'd met in England, we, um, we ended up having lunch, we had quite a long lunch, because that actually ended up turning into dinner at the same restaurant, because we <laughs> hadn't actually left. Um, and that dinner then ended up turning into a two o'clock breakfast at Brown's Hotel, which is where he was staying. How funny. And seven o'clock, I think I went home, and I told my wife uh, that we were going to sell everything, and we were going to move to America. Um, How'd she react to that? Oh, she thought I was drunk. <laughs> and you, you may well have <laughs> And been. I may well have been. Yeah. I probably was when I agreed to do it. Um, but that would have been around March, April. Uh, so I, I guess part of uh, trying to figure out everybody's story is that's the moment that you make some radical change that obviously alters the trajectory of your whole life. Totally. But probably comes from knowledge that you actually have. In I mean, other words, there, there was a reason behind it, just it wasn't a whim that you were out with somebody for 14 hours and decided to move to America, was it? Honestly, it was, it was, it was probably more of a whim than a reason. Ah. Um, I had, I should backtrack, I, I wasn't born in England. I was sent to England to be educated. So I spent my life in a boarding school, away from my family, away from my brother and sister and parents. Um, We saw each other at holidays, and that was it. That was the way things were back then. Mm -hmm. Um, Did I like England? No, absolutely not. Hated it. Because to me, it was all about boarding school. Yes, of course. 
Um, hence, going to university in France. Uh, and so by 1990, after the crash of 87, after looking at what was going on in Lehman, it was probably time to make a change. And discussions rooted around the fact that what we were both doing respectively at our own companies, we could do on our own. Mm -hmm. uh, so the decision was made to come to America and start up our own business. Um, and the criteria of that business was that we would, we would work hard, we would build it, and at the end of the 10th year, we would sell it. So work hard, work for 10 years, sell So you wanted to put a cap on it. There had to be an end game. Yes. I think with Wall Street, one of the biggest problems is people don't have an end game and they stay for too long. Mm -hmm. uh, we had an end game, and it was propitious at, uh, at the 10th uh, year, it was, 19, it was 2000, coming into 2001. So uh, it worked and, as planned? It did work as planned. We had agreed um, to sell it, and Enron came along, and uh, they were trading at $98. Good old, good old Enron. <laughs> oh, yes, we loved them. Boy, that was a crazy time. Oh, that was silly. Uh, and actually, I take that back. We did not love them. We, we actually despised them. Yes. Um, but they were trading at $98. They did offer us cash. Uh, and, and we accepted. Mm -hmm. um, in hindsight, maybe we shouldn't have. Um, they went bust within months of us purchasing us. We were the last company they purchased. So lucky you, in a way. We were. I mean, you have to admit it. We were. We still, you know, they didn't pay us everything, but uh, they paid us some. So, so when you make these radical changes, which in your case may have been on a whim and has a lot to do with some type of either bravery or insanity. <laughs> I think more of the latter. <laughs> um, so Enron, Enron buys you up, you're on your own now, and then what happens? Well, then as we all know, 9-11 happened. Ah, oh, right. And that, if anything, was the was decision. Were you living in the city? Uh, no, I was living in Connecticut in the country. I heard about it. My wife phoned me and told me I was, in, I, I was running a small consulting business and I was sitting in front of my phones. Uh, and I wasn't really watching the news and she called and said something horrible had happened. Uh, I think so we all I, remember where we were on 9-11. Very much. And I, I happened to be living in Washington, D.C. at the time and w was getting the call saying, look out your window because the smoke from the Pentagon could be seen from my back door and I was holding my one-year-old. Oh. And by the time my family in Chicago, we're going to talk about Chicago a little mm -hmm. bit later, by the time they tried to get through to me, the, all the phones were down. Yep. And it was just insanity. And my husband worked next to the White House and we couldn't get a hold of him. And it was just really... A, that's Obviously, a tragic time for everybody, but everyone's got their story again. They do. They do. And I mean, for me, the story was I was not going to go back to Wall Street. There you go. Um, that was it. We, I lost a lot of friends. And it was time. It was, what, almost 25 years of being there. Uh, and I was tired. Um, but the problem was I didn't know what to do. Mm -hmm. uh, so so you had the wine that. hobby? Yes. I, I had a wine hobby because I... I enjoyed drinking it, and I actually enjoyed buying it for my cellar. I, buy, I, I enjoyed the hunt for good wine. But again, I didn't really know that that was where the direction was going to take me. Um, and I spent three years sort of 
doing really very little, just enjoying myself. Motorbiked around the continent of India, um, and then, but then came back, and I think my wife said, you really have to get a job. Right. Being in your pyjamas at four o'clock in the afternoon. It's, it's a little disconcerting for, for the spouse. <laughs> for the spouse. You know, they, you get tired of looking at that guy. Yeah, I know. You really yeah, do. I know, especially yeah. me in pyjamas. <laughs> <laughs> And so, around the corner from my little office, consulting office in my town, um, there was a young girl who had opened a wine store. And I'd met her, I'd met her husband. Sort of the shop around the corner thing? Sort of a shop around the corner. It was a very cute shop. Um, She had great marketing sense. She had no business sense. Uh, So I came on and consulted and realized that I actually enjoyed what I was doing far more than consulting for hedge fund guys. Mm-hmm. Um, Who could tend to have any attitude? I mean, you know, yeah. it just happens. Well, also, yes, it was. I mean, so many things at that time was, uh, was in confluence. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, so during that period of consulting, I met people in the wine industry and realized that they were actually really nice people. Much nicer than the people I met on Wall Street. Well, because they're doing something so enjoyable. I mean, it's working with, it's like working with flowers or jewels or something, you know, some wonderful element. And it is still pretty esoteric. You do it because you love it. Yes. Um, Honestly, I went to Wall Street because I loved it. But that's. Everything's cyclical. It It just is. It is. Um, But, you know, also, and we're going to talk about uh, your restaurant, The Red Pony, your wine bar, really. But uh, you talk about that being a dream. But in a way, when you go into something that's so fabulous, like going all over the world and choosing wines, it's all a dream. It's all a dream. Right? Yeah. Yeah, it all. It all. I tell people now that after, after 12 years of being in the industry, I can't remember going abroad and staying in a hotel because I have winemakers all over the world who want, to come, who want me to come visit them. And hang so out go, with them. And I hang out with them. And I'm they become the friends. And it's really friends. It's, it's phenomenal. They're absolute friends. Well, because you're sharing a passion. Absolutely. Right. Um, and so no matter where I am, there's always a reason to go and stay with somebody and drink great wine and eat great food. So Wine at Five, 13 years ago, Rye, New York. Why Rye, New York? That was the economist in me. That was just the, analy- the analytics. Right. Um, I took data from the latest Census Bureau, which I think at the time was 2000. I knew what I wanted. I wanted a small town. I wanted a high disposable income. I wanted a town with lots of schools. Uh, and that's an Because people one. who have lots of children have to drink more? Uh, well, there is certainly that. <laughs> <laughs> but lots of schools mean lots of children, which means lots of young mums. Yes. And the economics in me said it's going to be young mums that are going to be my customer base five days a week. Interesting. Monday through Friday. Whether they want to admit it or not. Whether they do admit it, absolutely. But right. they, they are. They're the bastion of our business. Um, on, the, on Saturdays, the men come. And do the men buy more? Yes, they do. But if you aggregate how much the women buy five days a week, 52 weeks of the year. The women have to pretend like they're not yeah. buying as much. You well, know they're buying that, for right? their husbands. Yeah, all oh, right. Oh, there you go. <laughs> there you go. No, but what I, what I found interesting when you first opened, and I, everyone found very charming, is the use of a chalk. Ah, the chalk mark. For the price, yeah. which not only looked non-commercial and looked like you were in some Boutique. town in France and all of that, 
it was a new approach that I think everybody was very receptive to. I think everything, everything I've ever done from Wall Street onwards is always trying to define something that's better. I hate this 99 cent rule. I think it's absolutely... Well, everything's it's, 12 99 Right. It's just shocking. It's not. It's $13. Yes. Call it $13. And why, why, why is it 12 99 when it's, it's really 13 Because the marketers decided that if it was 13 people would turn away from it, whereas they would buy exactly the same item at 12 99 because the perception was it was cheaper. It's just not not true. That's ridiculous. And the other thing I knew that we were going to do was we were going to gift a lot of bottles. Um, You have been a huge asset to the community for all sorts of charity events. I know that being somebody who does work for the Rye Art Center, you have been a great contributor to that organization. But you've also done these wonderful events at some of the shore clubs where you come, there's a wine tasting, uh, there's an initial charge for those members, but then, hey, buy a case of wine and get that waved. And there's, there's all sorts of wonderful things that you've come up with. Is, is that how you're spending a lot of your time is thinking how to introduce That'd people to wines and be out in the community? And, totally. Yeah. That's the fun of it. Right. I mean, that really is for me. That is, my ambition is to have everybody in the world drink wine. Mm-hmm. Um, second ambition would be that they all buy it from me. Of course. Um, well, naturally. That's not happen. Um, we're, we're talking with Kai Palmer. This is What's the Story with Kim Burns. But I think it's just... Wine has always been a rather staid, conservative... Our parents had it. It wasn't very good. We didn't really know much about it. Our parents didn't like us to drink it, etc., etc. But wine is actually way more than that. Look at, look at the way food has transgressed in the last 25 years. Everybody is passionate about food. Everybody likes, everybody seems to enjoy to cook. Well, but also somehow we can get our hands on the fabulous, organic, wonderful food where you couldn't in the 50s. And it's changed us. It's changed the way that we live at home. Well, you go to Europe, wine is not, it's not a luxury. Right. Wine is an absolute necessity. If you eat, you drink wine. So why is America so far behind in understanding that concept? Because they still are. And <laughs> How you know, long have we got? It, it, well, it, it, it's interesting. We're, we are going to talk a little bit about it. But I think a lot of Americans are still intimidated, particularly people who aren't used to spending money on something like you know wine or even spirits. So I think that they feel like they're not very educated. You've made it easier for people to come in and ask questions about wine. Uh, but Americans in particular, why is that, Kai? I think a lot of it has to go back to the Prohibition era. Right. Um, this concept that wine is still, it's an alcohol and therefore it's addictive and it's a drug. Um, we still have customers coming into the store who, when we suggest that maybe they would like two bottles of wine because they have a dinner party of six people, that's way too much alcohol at the dinner table. No. Oh, yeah. Well, they're not friends of mine. <laughs> it's they, nobody they, I know. They don't usually come back to the store either. Oh, that's but it's the same reason that we, we brown bag our bottles because Disguise. The, law, the, law, the law says that we don't actually have to. It's a misnomer. Everybody thinks that it's a law that a bottle has to be disguised in some form. Oh, of I power. thought that so you could drink it in the park and nobody knew what you were doing. That's still illegal. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, they, they don't want to be seen carrying a bottle of wine down the high street. 
Um, you go to France and nobody cares. Everybody's of course they don't. delighted to be carrying a bottle of champagne or something. Right. So we hide it. Um, but that's, we hide an awful lot of things. Yeah, that's, uh, and that's a shame. And we hide wine yeah, and alcohol. The Puritanism um, of yeah. America. What about champagne? Are you a fan? I love champagne. I love champagne. I would drink champagne every day of every, every day of the year. Do, um, now, why is it that if you drink the same amount of champagne as you do wine on a given day, you have a bigger headache? Is it, is it just individual preference and reaction, or is it that champagne has something else going on, perhaps the bubbles? I, well, I'm not, going to profess, I'm not going to profess to know the answer, but 13 years ago when I opened the store, the most requested question I had was I can't drink red wine because it gives me a headache. I can't drink white wine because it gives me a headache. What gives me a headache? Why do I get a headache? Every day somebody would ask me the same question. Uh, and eventually I decided that I didn't know what I was talking about. I would go and find somebody who did. And there are two doctors at uh, a hospital in Boston who have for 37, well that was then 37, so probably about 45 years, They've carried out a study to see the correlation between migraine and alcohol, um, specifically wine. And let's say it's 45 years now. After 45 years, they have determined that there is zero correlation. Is that right? Zero. Headaches are caused by dehydration. And by having drinks with people that are boring. And, well, that, that, yes, <laughs> in which case you're not going to have a hangover, you're going to have a headache before you no, even go to bed. Drawing, um, drawing the but, drinking. But no, the hangover really is. It's a, the, the headache is caused by, bodily, by, by your body dehydrating. Okay, so what do alcohol, we suggest? Well, alcohol dehydrates quicker. The faster alcohol moves to your brain, the quicker your body will dehydrate. So, for example, what do we have in front of us? Well, that's why champagne will very quickly cause dehydration because it rushes to the head. Oh, it rushes to the head. It rushes to the head. Now, is that because of the... Okay, see, then I was right. bubbles, yeah. Okay. Now, so, but then we're talking about alcohol and that rushes to the brain more quickly than a red or a white wine will. Is that correct? The higher the alcohol content and the more of it that you drink, the more your body will dehydrate. Okay. So the more you dehydrate, the more chances are you'll have a, you'll have a headache. Okay. Um, so what we have here, yes, we have, we have tequila and we have a bottle of mezcal. And what's the difference? Mezcal is the big bad boy. Tequila is, has taken on a renaissance. Yes, it has. Recently. Everybody wants tequila. The next step from tequila is mezcal. Uh, very similar. Tequila is and can only be made from 100% blue agave, and that's a cactus, and it's a particular type of cactus, and all tequila can only be made from blue agave. Mezcal, on the other hand, can be made from any type of agave, and there are plenty of them. Is the mezcal the one that has the worm in it occasionally? Yeah, no, tequila That's only in it. Tijuana. It's only in Tijuana. <laughs> <laughs> And that's a, you know, and that's a town that only Trump wants to visit. Right. <laughs> um, so mezcal, but mezcal can be made from any type of agave. And those other types of agave typically are wild. 
they're not harvested. They're not. They're not. Uh, you don't have orchards or fields of wild agave plants. You do so, have. So you fields. don't know what you're getting necessarily. Don't necessarily know what you're getting. But the the, the the tequilerista, the, the man who's making the tequila, he will know exactly what he's looking at. He will know from the leaves, from the colours, from the pignon size. He'll know which ones they are. Um, and the rarer the agave plant is the more expensive that mezcal will be. Uh, tequila, you really, I mean, if you're, if you're paying more than $80 for a bottle of tequila, you're paying You're wasting price. your money, right. But mezcal will start at about $80. Oh, you're kidding. And will go up to hundreds of dollars. But, it, but you're taking a risk. Well, not necessarily, no, because the people who are making it really do know what they're doing. Um, there are slight differences in the distillation process. The most notable, noticeable in a mezcal, if you smell the tequila, this is a tequila. Like tequila. And she's taking a very large gulp. <laughs> no, she's not. <laughs> and now smell the mezcal. Oh, smoke. it doesn't smell. Like, it doesn't smell like tequila. No, it smells like smoke. Interesting. Because what they do here is they roast the pignons. That's the heart of the, te- the, heart of the agave. <laughs> Woo! Oh, listeners, if you could see her face now. That, that's really amazing. <laughs> Isn't I mean, so, but the mezcal, I understood that if you drank that, let's say you had two drinks made with mezcal, you're not necessarily guaranteed to understand the way your body's going to react to it. In other words, you may be very drunk all of a sudden or act erratically, or maybe that just happened to me. I don't actually think so because, in fact, the tequila that you just drank has a higher alcohol content than the mezcal. So it's nothing, it really has nothing to do with the the alcohol content. Okay. Mezcal is just a very, it's rather like a whiskey, a scotch, Got it. I don't think people know that. I don't. All right, everybody, Kai Palmer's telling you something you don't know. I love that. Um, So you have the single malt whiskey drinker who loves his single malt, but you offer him a Laphroaig, which is pure peat, that really peaty, intensely smoky, almost white whiskey, and they won't like it uh, Hmm. because it's totally different. Right. You'll have people who love tequila who can't drink mezcal. You know, tequila has become so popular, as you know, that people, I'm telling you, they're making up stuff. The other night I was at a party, at a party and people were talking about, oh, they're having tequila. It even makes your teeth white. I said, <laughs> that, that I've never heard. I've never heard There's a little bit of reaching right now for, to, to, to sell tequila. So I have a question about white wines versus red. So, for example... Uh, you go through a lifetime where uh, you, you've drank white wines, you've enjoyed white wines, and then all of a sudden you reach a certain age and you mm-hmm. can't really tolerate white wines, and all of a sudden red is your drink of choice. What's happening? Is it a palate change? Is it a sophistication? Mm, I, think it, I think it's a little of both. I think it's a little of everything. I know, certainly when I, when I, when I started collecting wine, I loved Bordeaux. Absolutely loved it. Give me a Pinot Noir, and I just, I, I would turn my nose at it. And I would say, ooh, this is horrible. I didn't like this. Um, and so my, sadly, my wine cellar is filled with, 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 with Bordeaux. But as I got older, I began to realize that my palate was changing. I couldn't do these really large, heavy Heavies, reds. Heavy, right. Um, what I call steakhouse. Yes. Wines. 
Um, I wanted to move down to something lighter, but I didn't want to lose the complexity. Mm-hmm. So I moved to Pinot Noir, to Burgundy. Um, and now my cellar is filled with beautiful Burgundy because it's just a taste that I prefer as I got older. So Pinot um, Noir is, to me, the most fabulous red and mm-hmm. so versatile. There's so many totally. different types of Pinot Noir. Absolutely. Uh, I sure you are a fan of the movie Sideways <laughs> and, and Miles is a, a brother I, to you I, lo- I, like, I, I love the movie I, I, I think it's sad what it did it destroyed Merlot in California do you um, think so? Totally. I mean, really? <laughs> they, within, within two or three years of that movie plantations of Merlot had been ripped out no! oh absolutely Thousands of acres of Merlot ripped out and replanted. That influential. With Pinot Noir. Nobody wanted to drink a glass of Merlot. And it's, it's really silly because at the end of the film, the bottle that he's actually drinking is 40% Merlot. Well, there you go. Merlot. So there I mean, you go. The whole thing. So and, and what would you say would be the biggest difference between drinking a Merlot and drinking a Pinot Noir? Flavor. Flavor, totally. right. Totally. But I mean, I mean, Merlot is a very, Merlot, I think personally, I love Merlot. It's a very sophisticated, very velvety, very elegant red wine. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's particularly versatile. Mm-hmm. Um, what about a Malbec? Mm, one of my least favorite grapes. Interesting. Malbec to me is just, at the mass produced level, it's revolting. At the higher end, it's good. But there's so many better. But That's not, but right. totally personal. And, you, and, you'd, and you'd have to pay for it at you that higher end. So they, do, they also tend to be, Malbecs tend to have a very, they tend to be more alcoholic. They're a big, fat grape. They carry a lot of Okay, uh, here comes the headache. Yeah. Uh, Malbec, if anything, is going to give me a headache. Interesting. Um, but okay. also looking at where it's grown. It's grown in, the, in, in some of the most arid lands of Argentina. Um, where they have what's called irrigated, they have regulated flooding. Um, the water is supplied by the government, and once every three days, a vineyards flood with water. These wines are not trained to look for minerality. Their, their roots are all along the surface of the ground. We've talked about that. So they have to go deep in and the, dig down for the minerals, correct. and that makes for a better grape. Makes for a more complex taste. More complex. Yeah. I think that relates to human beings who have to dig totally. down for some real stuff, and that makes that much more interesting. But if you, we try and make it simple with some of our wine tastings. We, 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 we try and explain that a Chardonnay vine grown in the Russian River of California doesn't have to do anything. It does not have to work at all. All the water is right there in the valley floor. If you, if you pull on that vine, chances are you'll rip it out of the soil. Um, it's a relatively sandy soil, and the, the vines don't have to travel to get water. You go to an area in the middle of Spain, like Mencia, and you look at some of their vines. These are vines that are 80 to 100 years old and they need cranes to rip them out of the soil. Hmm. Uh, Their tendrils, their root systems can go down 80 to 100 feet. So if you think, on the one hand, Russian River Chardonnay, you've got maybe two or three inches of minerality. It's a popular, popular place. It's a very popular place, a very popular grape. Um, But you go to Spain, you've got 80 feet of minerality coming up through those roots and just popping into a tiny little berry. That... That creates a much more complex juice. 
So let's talk about when you're purchasing for wine at five. You've talked about knowing folks all over the world now, staying with them mm-hmm. and them enjoying that. So how are you really picking these wines? Are you saying to yourself, because you come from a Wall Street background that you've obviously got to look at the marketplace. You're looking, I mean, do, do you, I know you don't want to do that, but you kind of have to do that. You, you do and you don't. You do and you don't. I mean, we get, we get a lot of jip because we don't have wines like Josh and Barefoot and There's a lot like of other places to get them. Exactly. That's and it. go and get them. Go get them. Um, I want to, I, I always wanted to introduce them stuff that was new to a customer I wanted I really I didn't want to educate a customer more than I actually wanted a customer to come back and say that was a wonderful bottle of wine now they're not going to come back and say a bottle of Chardonnay from Barefoot is a wonderful bottle of wine no they're just going to get through <laughs> gonna get making through dinner for their exactly. kids um, so that was I just wanted people to enjoy good wine right and so the basis of deciding what was good or not had to ultimately come from me Yes. So we taste every wine that we sell. We will not sell a wine if we haven't tasted it. Didn't Gallo or somebody say, who said that? <laughs> oh, possibly. And look what happened. Well, he made a lot of money. Um, so we do. We taste everything that we sell. We, we do a lot of research. We do an enormous amount of work trying to find the wines trying to find the right wines. And that means reading and listening. So and do, do you think do you think it changes fairly frequently mm. what you're interested in? Totally. How it does. I I love to cook and I believe in the seasonality of cooking. And the same the same seasonality is with a wine. You know, everybody would love to have this knowledge. They really would. They would. They would it's love a, to. it's an education that everybody would love to have. A, a very simple piece and we try we, we tell many customers all the pedanticism aside and all of the research and these stupid point scoring systems, etc. At the end of the day, if you don't like the wine, you don't like it. Right. If you like the wine, you like it. Find out why you don't like it. Well, find out why you don't like it, but also I think people are intimidated. They are. To come in and say to you, you know, Kai, I really only want to spend 20 bucks. What can I do? And, and that, because I feel like I don't know enough about wine to say right. to you, what's the best thing that I can do and how can I enjoy it, but learn while I'm drinking it, again, why I like it or don't. And I think in that respect, we, we really did change people's perception here in Rye. Um, I think a lot of people are probably quite grateful that we came here because we have educated them without ramming it down their throats, without being the snob and saying, well, you know nothing and I know everything. We don't know anything. We learn every single day. Um, but customers have, have gained an appreciation for what they like. It's still what they like. Um, they've gained an appreciation that wine should be drunk with food, um, that wine should be enjoyed. Uh, and the more that we can build that reputation as being a place where you do not have to be intimidated, you don't have to feel intimidated. You right. can come and ask us the most dumb question and we'll give you an honest answer. Right. It's not going to be an answer that's, oh my God, he's so stupid. <laughs> um, it's not. We say that behind your back once of you've left. Of course you do. <laughs> but, but no, I just, I really want people to enjoy what they're drinking. Now, so after having Wine If I be such a great success and such a contribution to Rye, 
you decided to open the Red Pony and were fortunate enough to be able to do it right next to the wine store, which of course makes total sense. If you like something you've had mm-hmm. at the Red Pony, you can go buy it next door. Uh, but you're also here on a regular basis. And the other night I was here enjoying some jazz and what you were really talking about was taking this concept of a social situation that didn't have to do with a sports bar, did, was more of a European model. Mm-hmm. And so far it seems to be working. Very, everybody seems to love it. It's a, it's a more difficult concept. It is definitely, it goes back to this, quote, this comment that I made earlier that wine is still viewed as a luxury in this country. And it is still viewed as a, as a poison, as a drug, as an alcohol. Um, what I've tried to do with the Red Pony, and very deliberately did not make this into a restaurant. First off, we have way too many restaurants in Rye. Um, I don't think that's a bad thing. I think it's a great. I, I think it's great because it brings people from all over the county. But this is really Rye. a different venue. This is not a restaurant. Right. This is pure and simply a wine bar that sells cocktails and happens to sell spirits. Right. Um, and the and you have and you have real mixologists here. Totally. Yeah. Um, and the concept was really to build upon the the European style, the the, the bistro wine bar, not the restaurant, the enoteca in Italy, not the restaurant. Somewhere where at five o'clock you've just got off the train, and you can stop you, in. You can stop in and have a quick glass of wine. Right, but you're, you're also serving cheeses we, and. We do serve cheese platters, uh, charcuterie and fromage, and uh, smoked salmon platters. Uh, anything that doesn't need to be cooked that we can get past the Westchester Health Department with. Um, but for a lot of people, we'll stop in and have, have a, a platter, and that's it. Absolutely, that's all I need. Yeah. Right, listen to a little music on Thursdays. And again, notice we didn't go the route that so many have gone, which was tappers. I mean, tappers is great, it's fine. Um, It does require a kitchen. And again, it was not what I was... That wasn't your ambition. It wasn't the ambition. I I would prefer you to come in and have a glass of wine than ask for a plate of various tappers. Um, Because what I want is to bring across this concept that wine is relaxing. Just come here with a couple of friends, sit down. If we're playing jazz, which is great, um, listen to a bit of jazz. It's adult entertainment, and we've I think that's what that. that's what the key is. Yeah, we've lacked that in right. Yeah, uh, and the customers who constantly come back in just appreciate the fact that they can bring their they can bring their in laws, they can bring their grand in, they can sit down quietly, have a great glass of wine not feel intimidated, not feel that they have to buy an enormous platter of food that they really don't want to eat, uh, and they can go on afterwards somewhere else. So why the Red Pony? Why the name? (laughs) Well, like everything I do, this actually started about 12 years ago. Um, It fermented, and there was no way that... I was never going to open a bar if the wine store couldn't be right next to it. So as you know, in Rye... Property is tough. Yes. I was all the way down the other end of the street. And the smoke shop was here. And the smoke shop was here. And then the smoke shop wasn't. And the landlord started to rebuild it. And I approached the landlord and said, if you're looking for a tenant, then let's come to an agreement quickly before you start building the floor plan. And I don't want that floor plan. So he said, what do you want to do? And I told him I wanted to move the wine store to a place right next to the wine bar. And he agreed. Um, Excellent. So we did. So that's why it took 10 years to get here. Um, 
And so the name was gestating. And the year, 18 months before, the amount of work that is required to open something like this was horrendous. And I would get home at 11 o'clock at night. I had two puppy dogs. And I would take them for a walk and I would just look at them totally exhaustedly. Uh, and I would turn on mindless television. And one of the programs I started watching uh, was a sort of, it's not really a Western, but it's a, it's a sheriff in a Western town in Wyoming. It's, he's a small town sheriff. All, small all the town. people who go to boarding school in London watch those shows. They do. Yeah. <laughs> but this was an American one. And it was called Longmire. So if you've never seen it, go out and watch it. It's a really cute series. It's absolutely lovely. Six episodes. Um, and it's great. And uh, Lou Diamond Phillips, who I think is one of, the, one of the great and most underrated actors out, uh, in, the, in the series, he owns a bar. And the bar is called The Red Pony. Ah, there we go. And he would pick up the phone. I knew there was a story behind it. Every time he picked up the phone at The Red Pony, he would say, it's a beautiful day at The Red Pony. And, and it is. continuing soiree. Right. But you Another open at five I at The Red five. Pony. Yeah. He's, and, a, he's and, in the West. He's a Western. And, and, that's right. That's right. <laughs> he wants that lunch. They don't care. As well. They don't care. Mm-hmm. I'm talking with uh, Kai Palmer and we're sitting at The Red Pony right next door to Wine at Five. And we were talking earlier about how you feel that people should be able to have a glass of wine anytime they want as long as it, well, maybe excluding the morning. Perhaps. Perhaps. Uh, but wine at five. Why wine at five? Because it's five o'clock any place? That actually, no, that came about, the, so the name of the store came about, we were, we were sitting around my deck at my home. Uh, my wife is a teacher. And we'd been playing with work. I'd been playing with names for, for months. Uh, and one of the teachers... Um, one of the teachers had a glass of wine in her hand and she said, oh, well, I drink wine at five. And then a number of the other teachers said, I drink wine at five as well. And of course, because schools had, were in that datum that I was collecting, yes. I thought, well, if, if I have a town where there are an awful lot of schools, that means an awful lot of teachers, and teachers would like a glass of wine at five. So that's how it came. And you know what's interesting is that all those moms who are buying wine from you, they have a designated time where they can buy. It's guilt-free totally. drinking. <laughs> While the kids are doing their homework. Right. <laughs> but they, you have to say, okay, every day at 5 or 5.30 or whatever it is. It's just like your 10-year plan for your business. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, we're, gonna, we're done in 10 years. Yeah. I think people are like that. They like to feel like they put some controls in place. Right? Yes. So you had talked about Chicago. You're fond yeah. of uh, the city of Chicago. I just, just got back last night. What do you love about Chicago? Everything. Absolutely everything. Did you ever live there? I never did. That was a great shame. Um, when, we started, when we started on Wall Street, we were a trading company. Um, and obviously commodities. Uh, Chicago is the center of commodity trading in America. Um, so much of my business was in Chicago. So the Board of Trade? Board of Trade, Board of Options, yep. Merck, uh, but also the banks yes. were doing all the commodity financing and, and the hedge funds were all there. Uh, and the hedge funds and the banks were my business, they were my clients. So I would end up commuting to Chicago. Um, easy town. Much, very easy town to get into. I stayed at the same hotel every, every three weeks for 10 years. 
Um, never moved. Only on Michigan Avenue? Just off. It was on Chestnut. Yes. Oh, um, lovely. Lovely area. Quiet. Near the water tower. Yeah, exactly. I loved it. Um, one, one elevator hotel. Uh, and so Chicago, I do, the head of, one, of the, one of my copper traders, the first time I went to Chicago, uh, I went downstairs to the trading floor and I asked Steve if he knew of anywhere I should stay in Chicago and what I should do. And uh, he gave me some information. At the end of it, he said, Kai, you're going to love Chicago. And I promise you, within 10 minutes of arriving, you'll phone me and tell me that you love Chicago. <laughs> and he was absolutely right. I arrived, I walked up Michigan Avenue and I phoned him and he said, so what makes it special? And I said, people here have actually said good morning to you. Oh, yes. They're rather nice. They're, they're very nice. Yeah. Um, so and you know, it's I interesting it. about it. I, I grew up in Chicago, uh, <laughs> but when you walk down Michigan Avenue, one of the reasons that it feels so different is that they were very cognizant of using light mm-hmm. with uh, the large buildings. And of course, the architecture is amazing. Yes. So, so many of them are set back on plazas yes. that you actually have light-filled avenues and boulevards, which is why it doesn't feel dark and scary like some other big cities. Never felt claustrophobic, never felt afraid. And of course you're on the lake, and the lake is sparkly. And And you've got the river. And you've got the river. And as you mentioned, I think some of the greatest architecture, I haven't been down south, I would like to go and visit New Orleans and places like that, but for the time being, Chicago is absolutely the most beautiful Big shoulders, big shoulders. Um, And a great food scene. I wanted to throw out that the House of Gluns, uh, which began in 1988, is the oldest wine house in Chicago, started by Louis Gluns, and that was Louis Gluns Sr. The Louis Gluns of today is my uncle. You're kidding. I had no idea. Yes, and in fact, it's really amazing because they have... Everything from uh, a wine shop on Well Street that's now a museum, but the uh, Glen's Tavern, which serves every kind of wine and beer and brunch, mm. is very famous in Chicago. So I should know more than I know. <laughs> what, what fascinated me the last time, or one of the last times I was there, again, well before I had a concept of doing the wine store, um, there's a restaurant... I believe it's called Bin, Bin 47, Bin 87, something like that. It's Bin something. And I was intrigued because it sounded like a wine bar. So I went in and sure enough, it is a wine bar. But it's also a restaurant. Do you remember where it is? No. It's not Binion's. No. Okay. No. Um, uh, but so it's, it's a wine bar, but it's also a restaurant. It's a mini supermarket, and it's a retail store. Really? All in one building. Huh. All in one space. Small scale? No, quite large. Hmm. Quite large. Probably about 2,000 square feet, 3,000 square feet. Um, But you don't have any of these silly laws that you have in New York that, for instance, prevent me from having a door between the wine store and the wine bar. Right. Not allowed to. And why is that? Oh. Any idea? I, I have no idea. I mean, it's probably it's tied to the law that won't allow them to sell wine at grocery stores. Correct. Or beer in a wine bar. Which at a wine store. is ludicrous. I'm not allowed to sell bread. But that must go back to prohibition, no? That, no. I think, sadly, I'm, I'm a little more cynical. Uh, I think a lot of that goes back to money. 
There are, you know, since, since grocery stores are not allowed to sell wine, they put up a law that said wine stores aren't allowed to sell anything that can be sold Tip in a grocery tat, store. Huh? Tip for tat, huh? Well, so that's you a have, shame. You have, the, you know, you have some very, very big names in the wine, in the, in the, in the um, market, supermarket industry, Wegmans especially, uh, and until they're allowed to sell wine, they're going to pay Albany to prevent the sale of anything else in a wine store. Well, now we're getting political with Kai Palmer and <laughs> the Red Pony. I was, I was taught not to talk politics or guns or religion. Well, <laughs> not when you're in this business. You're not allowed to talk about anything controversial, right? Except how pleasant it is to, to how have wonderful wine. everybody How is. wonderful wine is. Uh, this is What's a Story with Kim Burns. We need to wrap up in a few minutes, so I wanted to tell the listeners that you were the 2018 Best of Westchester winner uh, for Best by the Glass Wine Selection. Nice. Boy, that's a lot of words. That is. Uh, that's a lot of words, but it means a lot for people who come in when they order something. Can they t- take a look at the menu and know what they want, or do you feel like you give them guidance, your mixologists give them guidance? We, how how we does it will, normally work? We'll definitely give them guidance. Um, we, we try to simplify the menu without going over the top and simplifying. So the blends are there, uh, it's relatively easy to read. The names are not going to be familiar, um, and that's deliberate. You know, again, it goes back to the same thing. If you want barefoot Chardonnay, go somewhere else. Um, but if you want a Presqu'il Chardonnay from Santa Barbara County, that's something that we'll have. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where, that's where the mixologists and my bar staff we keep up to date with them. Uh, we train them in the, in the wines. Uh, I'm usually here. My son is very often here as well. Um, between us, we, we, we get through by telling people, by explaining to them nicely what it is that they're about to drink. Um, and we listen to what it is that they want to drink. And we come up with a pairing. Um, and again, a sommelier who once walked into the store many years ago, he said the reason he comes to buy wine in my store as a sommelier, is because even if the wine is not to his choosing, it's still going to be a good wine, because mm. we just don't sell bad wine. Right, well, you've built that confidence yeah. by reputation. I think so. So, in this long story of yours, Kai Palmer, so far you've lived the dream, so now what? Well, now, little... I'm gonna, now I'm going to build a rocket and go to Mars. Well, no, I think somebody, you know, somebody <laughs> else beat you to it. it. Oh, too bad. <laughs> too bad. No, I actually, I, I, I'm quite happy to stay doing this. I, I, I love the fact that I can, go, I can go to any country and usually stay with a winemaker. Um, I love the fact that this, is, this industry is more social, more passionate than any other industry that oh, I know Oh, it's fun. It's fun. Why would I change that? You wouldn't. No. Although I, I, I can't help but thinking, with you having such an ambitious personality, there may be something else in the works down the road. No. Never know. No. Never know. Never know. No. Certainly not going to admit anything at the moment. Well. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe after another glass of mezcal. All right. So are you expecting a, a crowd? Are you open on New Year's? What do you- we'll be open on New Year's Eve. Um, we'll be closed on New Year's Day. Um, staff have to have some rest. Of course they um, do. So New Year's um, Eve, how late are you open? Oh, certainly. I mean, we, we have a rule that is we don't have a rule. Um, the, the rule is at uh, the discretion of the bar manager at the time. 
Um, if it's quiet at 11 o'clock and he wants to go home, he goes home. Um, we don't have a closing hour. You don't? No, we're open till late. So very often we're here until 1 o'clock. Um, Do you get stragglers in that late? We, we do, and we'll serve them if they're sober. Yes, um, that's, a, that's a brilliant if, thought. If they're not, no, we're closed. Right. Um, but we're not going to turn away a, gr- a crowd of four or five people who have come back from the city and they've been to the theatre and they want to have a glass of wine before they go home. And that is really one of the most that's wonderful things want. to do. Yeah, that's what we want to do. Right. So, no, by, if, we, if we have rules and we set rules and there's no margin of error, um, here there's margin of error. We may be open, we may be closed. Uh, oh, well. So, take it or leave it. So, 2019, are we going to see a fabulous year for wine? I think vintage-wise, we're, see, we're, we're seeing a very good 2018. There are going to be some very good wines coming on board. Okay. Um, 19, obviously, way too early to tell. Um, the most difficult part of the year for any winemaker is February, March, um, when the snows come, the frost comes, and the hail comes. So it's not really until we begin to see May and we see bud break in the vines, in the vineyards, that we know whether we're going to have a good year or not. Um, but 18 was relatively safe. Europe did not get ravaged. Um, we had the problem in California, which had the fires. you explained to me creates a smoky grape that should be discarded, but is sometimes used. It is sometimes used. And, you know, there are, there's an argument behind it that I remember the last time we had horrendous fires in California in the wine industry. The following year, they did have a smoky tinge to them, um, but you could put that down to vintage varietal. Uh, you know, the, not every vintage is going to be perfect. If you want a perfect vintage, you go and buy something like Verve Clicquot, which never changes from well, year to year. Well, and if you don't want smoky, don't, don't drink mezcal. Don't, don't, don't drink mezcal. <laughs> um, but take advantage of the vintage. You know, some are great, some are not so great. All right. Um, well, I, I really appreciate you, Kai Palmer, telling us all about everything we need to know about wine. Well, thank you, Kim. And Wine at Five and The Red Pony. Uh, you were listening to What's the Story with Kim Burns. It's a new podcast. I hope you listen Every week, thanks for listening today. Thank you.